Good morning. You want to get out your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43 is where we will be this morning. So good to see you and be with you this morning. I appreciate your diligence and your desire to study. Uh, I know the rain has been pouring and there's puddles all over the place. I'm glad you made it here safely. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you have a desire that's willing to push past the discomfort and, and the struggle it may have been to get here. Uh, let's start this morning by reading the verses. Verse 43 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun, his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Throughout this teaching, we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is not uh, like the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not like the other religious teachers of the day. As he's been teaching the people about his kingdom and those who would be in the kingdom, he's been revealing to us a completely different mentality on the law and on righteousness than anybody had ever heard of before. He started out saying, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who are meek and, and the merciful and the peacemakers and all these characteristics of people that, that nobody really thought much of and, and they seem to be the lower people. And then he, he changes his gears and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom. So you've got this picture of the lowly and everybody's like, yes, that." Uh, you know, that are lower, like, yes, I can do this, you know, that this is for me, and then, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, whoa, wait a second, <laughs> these are the most religious people of the day, and we're supposed to be even greater, even more righteous than they are, and Jesus describes how that is, that those scribes and Pharisees have not become the most righteous people, and they've not become righteous enough uh, that they are now glorifying God and that they are living in a way that God is pleased with them. And so he starts pointing out internal characteristics, internal flaws that he finds in those scribes and Pharisees. As they've got all these teachings that are true, they also have all these teaching, all these uh, areas of the law that they're overlooking. Right? Don't murder. That's clear. Jesus says don't get angry. Uh, don't, don't commit adultery, that's clear from the Old Testament. Jesus says, don't lust after a woman. All these ideas are, are pointing to the fact that the scribes and Pharisees don't have it all figured out, and the things that they're teaching don't go deep enough, that the righteousness that God requires of man goes beyond what we're comfortable with and what we want to believe is good enough. And so Jesus has been pointing to this, and last week we looked at their teaching, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and we saw how they're pulling that out of Scripture, right? There's some texts in the Old Testament that point to this decree that the, that the punishment for a sin is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but they're taking that out of context. That's to be used in the judicial system, and they're using it for every aspect of their lives, 
Well, now we see him continuing this idea. He said, he said, instead of that, I want you to show compassion toward those who are evil against you. I want you to show them love and to do good for them. If they slap you, turn the other cheek. If they want to take your tunic, give them your cloak. Uh, if anybody forces you to go one mile, go with them too. So if they insult you, if they accuse you, if they force you, or if they want to take advantage of you, give to them. Show them love. Show them compassion. And it just kind of blows our minds to think that. But then verse 43, he adds to that idea. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that idea, hate your enemy, is very much what we see in the an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth kind of mentality. That they hate the person and that they want justice and they want to get back at the person and have vengeance. And Jesus is trying to stop that from happening. Well, think about that for a minute. You will love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That, that is the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Is that a teaching that we're familiar with? A teaching that maybe we adopt on some occasions that it's okay to hate this person because they're my enemy. Uh, if you look in the Old Testament, there's a number of instances where it seems like, you know, it, it may be okay. Like, loving your neighbor is very obvious in Luke 19, but there's nowhere in the Old Testament that says, hate your enemy, that commands, God commands his people to hate their enemies. Uh, but there's some ideas in Scripture that kind of lead us to believe that maybe it's okay for us to hate those who are our enemies. And the, the Pharisees have kind of latched on to that idea. And they've made that part of their teaching. You love your neighbor, you hate your enemy. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, right before the people are about to enter into the promised land, Moses says this to the people, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous, and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. For thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. Verse 16. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Notice some of the phrases found throughout this section. Have no mercy on them. Consume them. Your eyes shall not pity them. God makes it clear as they're about to go into this land that he wants them to be unmerciful to their enemies. He wants them to show them no love. He wants them to uh, attack them and destroy them completely. So God clearly wants evil people wiped off of the land. And so you can see how this might promote the idea, the thinking, that it's okay to hate our enemy. We can clear them out. We can get rid of them. Uh, God wants us to do that. But, but think about the context of what he's saying and where he's saying it. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. But He's, he's making it clear, 
In this case, you're going to go and you're going to attack them and you're going to wipe them out and you're going to show them no pity whatsoever as you wipe them out. Another text in the Old Testament that might have thrown the Jews for a loop and made them think this is okay, one that you might be thinking of, is all of the imprecatory psalms. You ever looked at the imprecatory psalms? Uh, and, and have they ever thrown you off? Uh, Psalm 69 is an important one. It's, it's actually referred to a lot in the New Testament. But uh, verse 22, Psalm 69, verse 22, he says this, David says this about his enemy. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Listen to some of these phrases that are coming out of the mouth of David. That their eyes will be darkened so that they can't see what's right. Uh, pour out your indignation, punishment upon punishment. Blot it out. Blot them out of the name, their name out of the book of the living. And don't let them be enrolled in the righteous. You see in all of this that David wants these evil people that he's speaking about in these imprecatory psalms to suffer. That this is his attitude toward his enemies. And so we can see very clearly why the Jews would have the impression that it's, that it's a good thing to hate your enemies. David himself, a man after God's own heart, is here hating his own enemy. And, and that helps us, right? As we're out in the world uh, and someone is our enemy and someone is evil against us, we kind of feel justified now, right? Uh, we can be indignant uh, toward those who are evil against us. If somebody offends us, uh, they say critical words against us, that they, they talk bad about us, talk bad about our work, uh, if they make assumptions about us that aren't true, uh, and they want to they, they talk behind our backs about stuff, if they want to actually harm us, they want to harm the work that we're doing, or if they want to uh, act against our families, we feel perfectly justified in despising them, wishing ill upon them, and maybe even retaliating against them. These attacks that we receive, they, they turn into anger and we just, it bubbles over and we may hold a grudge. If, if we do nothing else to retaliate, we will at least hold a grudge. We might even say that we forgive them, but deep down inside, we're holding on to that, that indignation because that person has made themselves our enemy and we're not okay with it. It could happen at work, it could happen at school, it could happen at home. It could happen in the church family. Uh, we can have enemies all over the place and feel, feel this way toward people who have offended us, who have done something against us. And we might feel justified, but look at what Jesus says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, Jesus comes back and says, this is not the way God wants his people to be. It's not okay to, to, to hate your enemies. Jesus says to love your enemies. Now imagine uh, 
trying to love someone who has done all these evil things against you? Why would we ever love someone who has hated us? Imagine uh, living in a land where people are uh, allowed to beat you because of your beliefs. Imagine living in a land where people are allowed to abuse your family, your husband, your wife, your children. And, and, and they're persecuting you. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They're doing all kinds of these evil things against us. Why in the world would we ever love them? Well, actually, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to love their enemies. So that impression that we got, <laughs> that it's perfectly fine to be angry against our enemies, to, to lash out, to, to pray for bad things to happen to them, may be a little bit misguided. And we'll come back to it later on in the, the sermon. But as we look at the Old Testament, the impression we get from the law is that God never really intended for us to hate our enemies, but he actually wanted us to be loving toward them, as difficult as that would be. In Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18, he says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Did you hear these words coming out of God's mouth as he talks to us, as he, he reveals to us how we're supposed to treat our brother or our neighbor? He says, don't hate them in our heart, but reason frankly with them. It's okay to go to a neighbor or an enemy and reason with them, but don't hate them in your heart. Don't be vengeful against them. Don't bear a grudge against them. Instead, he wants us to love them. As ourselves. Why does he say it like that? Love your neighbor as yourselves. You know, the world tells us that the problem that we have is we don't love ourselves enough. But I think we have no problem loving ourselves. When we, when we really think about it. Who are we most interested in uh, succeeding? <laughs> What are we thinking about all the time? Who, who, whose interests are we most engaged in? Uh, what are we focused on? Are we focused on our own comforts? We want ourselves to be comfortable. We want ourselves to be satisfied. We want ourselves to be glorified. We want all of our needs to be met, all of our wants to be met. We want to be well thought of. We want to enjoy pleasures. When we make mistakes, we're very forgiving. We, we assume the best of ourselves. In fact, we may even deceive ourselves so that we can believe that we really meant it for good. This is the way we treat ourselves. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Imagine loving your neighbor that way. You see how this is a radical thought that God gave even back in Leviticus that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would love someone else the way that we love and think about ourselves. That's a huge thought, a huge idea. And we see God never really wanted there to be malice in our hearts or hatred or vengeance or grudges between us and our brother or us and our neighbor. He wanted us to love them. 
In Exodus 23, it even says this, verse 4, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You see, in, in Exodus, he says, if your, your, your enemy is, is got a donkey or an ox that's run away from him and you see it, you might be tempted to say, Ha-ha, sorry, not helping, or you might be tempted to kill it. <laughs> this is an opportunity to get back at this guy for killing your animal. I'm going to kill it. The last thing you might think to do is go and try to chase it down, tie it up, and bring it to your enemy. But this is what God commands his people to do. And if you see a donkey that's got its load and it's a heavy load and it's, it's lying down it can't get back up for its load, maybe the enemy's there trying to help him get up, can't get it up, you're supposed to go and help your enemy. Lift it up with your enemy and help them. And this is the way God wanted his people to interact with others that are even their enemies. Our goal is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if we see a neighbor who's in need like that, this is the way God wants us to act toward that neighbor. Now, look at Matthew 5 again. And look at the reason why we need to be willing to love someone who hates us. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a number of, of reasons why that Jesus gives us for, for us to love those who have made themselves our neighbor, our, our enemy. The first reason is this makes us into sons of God. This makes us like God as we, as we are willing to forgive those who are enemies against us. We see that's the way God is toward his enemies. And he gives this illustration. Uh, he, makes the, he makes his son, whose son is it? His son to rise on the evil and the good. He makes his reign to come down for the evil and for the good. God loves his enemy. He provides for his enemy. And he's hoping to make peace with his enemy all along. You see that phrase, sons of God, and that should spark your mind to earlier in chapter 5 where he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That, that by being a peacemaker and not stirring up strife or not allowing strife to continue, we are like God. This is the way God acts. God is constantly trying to create reconciliation with his enemies. He's allowing them to breathe. He's allowing them to live, to extend their life further that they might have a chance to come back to Him. Every day is a gift for God's enemies. That they are given time to repent. We learn in Ezekiel that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in it. This is not the way God looks at it, that he's got all these enemies out there that at some point he's got he's to wipe them out. He's got to kill them, but, but he can't figure out how to do it. They just avoided it, so they, they've somehow been able to evade him all along. Yeah, right. 
God wanted to, he could wipe them out. But he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It kills me to hear of atheists and people who don't understand God that say, you know, hey, if if there's a God that exists, then why doesn't he take care of the evil that's going on in this world? Do we not realize (laughs) that we're grateful that he doesn't do that? Because we're evil. That we've made mistakes that that are worthy of that judgment and that if God just zapped us as soon as we did evil, then there would be nobody left but that God is patiently waiting and enduring and trying to give us time to repent. And if if we are here this morning and we have repented and we have been forgiven of our sins, then how in the world could we be hateful? How in the world could we have enemies and hate them when God has not hated us for all the sins and all the evil that we've done? we got to sympathize with those around us who were in a condition that we were once in, who were ignorant and who were making all kinds of mistakes and doing all kinds of things that are evil toward us. And understanding that if God would not have been patient and loving toward us, then we would have no hope. He points out something else here. He says, uh, if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Think about this for a minute. Who do you like to be around? Who do you show love to? Who do we we talk to constantly? Who are we constantly praising? Who are we constantly looking for opportunities to spend time with? Is it our enemy? Probably not, right? I mean, you look at society around us, and that's, that's the way they act. They don't spend any time with the enemy. They, they might act against the enemy, but they just kind of reject them and exclude them from the circle. Think about your circle, how big your circle was, maybe whenever you were a kid. And as you've gotten older, you've just kind of weeded it out, and you've improved it and refined it so that it's just this few group of people that don't hurt you. And this is the way that we act, that we, we love those who love us. But those who have done evil against us, we find a way to remove them from the group so that we don't have to love them anymore. And, and Jesus just says, if you're doing that, you're no different than everybody else. Yeah, oh yeah, you're so loving, you do all these wonderful works for these people who love you too. Yeah, Gentiles do that. In fact, they even love the poor sometimes. (laughs) They're even willing to be generous and giving to those who are poor sometimes. And, And they show love in all these different ways, but you're not really loving like God loves. You're loving in a way that benefits you. God wants us to demonstrate His love as we interact with those who don't love us. He wants us to show love for those who may hate us. Because that's the way He is. That's the type of God that He is. The end of this, He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the way God is. His love is perfect. He loves everyone. And He wants everyone to be with Him for all eternity. 
And if anyone does not get to be with him, it's not because God did not love them first. God loved them and and did what he could to show them his love. And they refused it. You know, sometimes I think we act a lot like the Jews. Uh, If you remember in Luke chapter 10, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, you remember that that lawyer asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yep, that's right, go and do that. And he says, and, and who exactly is my neighbor? <laughs> who is my neighbor that I need to love as myself? You know, we'll obey the love your neighbor as yourself commandment to an extent to those who are who we approve of, but once we label somebody, this is what they were doing, they label somebody as an enemy, then they think, I don't have to show the same kind of love to them as I would my neighbor. But Jesus is making the point, as a Samaritan is willing to take care of the Jew, that we are to love those who seem evil to us, who are our our enemies, uh, in a way that we would love ourselves. So what about the Old Testament then? Are we really supposed to love our enemies all the time in in the most extreme way as we love ourselves? Are we supposed to just uh, never give up on them and attach ourselves to them and and do everything for them and, and give them everything that we have? Well, what is that all about in the Old Testament? As we look at those texts a little bit further... Uh, we might wonder, why was God doing that? Why was he telling his people, show them no mercy, show them no pity? Uh, Why is he that way? Sometimes he gives these kind of judgments where he's showing no mercy to the people that he's judging. And as we look in the Old Testament, a lot of people get the idea, God of the Old Testament, he was an angry God, and man, he was wrathful. God of the New Testament's all love. But we see in the Old Testament, God loved In fact, God was loving toward Israel by allowing them to rebel against him time and time again and and judging them but trying to bring them back to him. And when they repented, he accepted them back in over and over and over again. I mean, the Old Testament really shows us more about God's love than his wrath and his patience in dwelling with this stubborn and rebellious people. In fact, the very act that we were looking at in Deuteronomy 7, where he's going to have his people go into the land and destroy and wipe out all of their enemies, was actually intended to be loving toward his people. It's like a father trying to prepare his children for success. They had this special relationship with God. They were able to to interact with God, to be his people, his chosen and holy people. And as they go into the promised land, as he's telling them, don't pity them, he's telling them as well that you must be very careful about the influence of those people. In fact, as we look throughout all of the Old Testament, the influence of the evil people in Israel that they let remain caused their downfall. They were, they were idol worshipers. That was their judgment. So God is knowing this is going to happen to his children. He's trying to prepare them and trying to help them and saying, I want you to wipe them out completely so that you will not be turned away from serving me so that I can have a relationship with you. Verse 16 specifically says, uh, your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods 
for that would be a snare to you. He doesn't want them to be pulled away from him. So this is a huge part of his command to show no pity, show no mercy. But, he, but whenever we compare that to ourselves and try to make application in our own lives, it doesn't really work. God's not commanded us to kill our enemies so that we don't get influenced by them. That's not the way God wanted us to live. In fact, the majority of the time, that was not the way he wanted Israel to live. That was just the initial coming into the land, removing the enemies so that they could live righteous before God. But these people that they were judging also, their time of judgment had come. God, God was patient with them. He, he, dwelt, he allowed them to live on the land for 400 years. Uh, from the time of Abraham to the time that they come into the promised land, he allowed them to live until their, their wickedness was complete. What about David and the imprecatory Psalms? Well, one thing that we see in all those is that David is reacting to all the suffering that he's in, and he's wishing for God to give the judgment for him. Not, not trying to do it himself, but that he's wishing for God to give the judgment for him. And another thing that we see in those is that he is actually showing love to the person before he gives that kind of a desire for, their, for his enemies to be judged. Psalm 35 is kind of an example of that. In verse 12 and 13, he says, They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with, a head, with my head bowed on my chest. He's, he's tried to love his enemies and they have constantly come against him. And he finally gets to a point where he says, you know, let them, you know, let them be judged, essentially. Because he's done good and they've refused it. But over and over again, this is what we see in the life of David. You remember uh, when Saul comes against him, this great enemy. He's got this patience with Saul. He doesn't kill Saul when he gets the opportunity. He gives the vengeance to God. He does that twice. Uh, Absalom rises up against him, his own son, rebelling against him. And he prays to God that God would do justice in Psalm 3, uh, that, that God's will would be done and that God would be glorified. But in the storyline, you get the picture of him loving his son and wishing that his son would repent or that, that he wouldn't have to die. At the end, whenever he finds out that his son has died, he says, Oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, wishing that this wasn't true. The love that David has is very obvious for his enemies. And so all those impeccatory psalms are really not telling us to hate our enemies, <laughs> But they're telling us to give the feelings that we have over to God and let him be the judge for those who are evil. And that's exactly what we see throughout the New Testament. Now you might, if you study the New Testament, you might run into different verses that seem to point to this idea that it's okay to hate your enemy. But really, if we think about it, it's kind of getting to this picture of hate the sinner, not the sin. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, the one who does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. It's kind of a picture of this person has chosen rebellion. I wish that there was something that could be done, but there isn't. And I've got other things that I have to focus on. And so I'm going to let them be accursed. And, and Corinthians, let them be accursed. It's okay. You don't have to attach yourself to that person to try to bring them back, causing yourself to stumble. Let them be accursed. And, and John says, uh, 
even if someone's per- sinning a sin that leads to death, uh, don't pray for that person. Okay? So whenever we love our enemies, the picture is not that we, we want to destroy them or that, that, that we want anything bad for them. It's the exact opposite. We want what's best for them. We think that the best thing that can happen for anybody is the salvation of their souls. So maybe you're here tonight, today and you're thinking, I don't hate anybody. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm happy that you don't hate anybody. But expand your thoughts even more. Do I really love people as I love myself? Have I just excluded them prematurely rather than showing them the love that God wants me to show them? Uh, and, and are we willing to treat them like we treat ourselves and love them like God has loved us? Jesus himself says, as a commandment to his disciples, to love your neighbor as I have loved you, to love one another as I have loved you. So this is what he's calling us to do. And this is hard, and this is perfection, but this is our goal in this life. Throughout this whole book, uh, throughout this whole chapter, he's been calling us to perfection. And as you're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, this is the way that we're intended to feel, that I'm not there yet. If anybody reads through this section and thinks, man, I, this makes me feel really good. I'm on top of things spiritually. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not angry with anybody. I'm not lusting. I'm not uh, lying. I'm not uh, evil toward those who are evil toward me. You know, if you're really thinking that, then we're just not thinking very deeply about all of these things. This is perfect love that God has given to us that we are now supposed to show to others. And we all stumble in all of these things. There's not a single person here who is perfect. And that's the impact that Jesus wants to make on everybody. We're not perfect. We need a Savior. We need someone to come in to rescue us from ourselves because we have failed miserably. We want to be righteous. We want to be like God. We want to be with God. But in the end, we know we've fallen short. And so he calls us to a radically different relationship with God, a radically different relationship with ourselves, and a radically different relationship with those around us, that we would love them as he has loved us. If you're here this morning and you have not experienced the love that God has for you, you don't understand how he loves you, even though you've made all kinds of mistakes, even though you've maybe even set yourself against him. You may have even said things against God or against his people. He wants you to know he loves you still. He is a God with open arms, always wishing that those who have made themselves his enemies would turn from their evil ways and come back to him in repentance and live. And if you're here this morning, and you want to do that, we want to encourage you and help you in any way we can. Please come as we stand and sing.